leftovers. Or the DMV. Or house cleaning. Or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You've decided to move and picked the neighborhood you prefer. But how much home can you afford? Which loan term is best? Start by contacting an Arundel Federal Savings Bank loan officer to get the numbers you need and a pre-qualification letter to present to your realtor. No cost to you. Whether building or buying, Arundel Federal wants to be the local community bank that you trust and think of for your home mortgage. Contact us today at ArundelFederal.com. A pre-qualification is not a loan approval or commitment to make a loan. Additional terms and conditions apply. Member FDIC and equal housing lender at MLS number 671636. Millions of despairing men, women and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom, kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one we're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the U.S. Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome everyone to Garden of Doom. And this week we are having another returning guest, Mark Ali. You'll recall he was on several months ago, and we talked about uh, human skulls and the crystal skulls and Paracas Man and exciting stuff like that. Um, today we are going to talk about two items uh, that are related. One is King Arthur and the Arthurian legends, and we're going to segue that into the Green Man writ large. Um, there's hopefully going to be some other Arthur shows surrounding this one at the time, so you get some compare and contrast or different views entirely. We'll see. Um, and also, if you want to compare and contrast on The Green Man, uh, one of the early shows with Andrew Goff, which was primarily about a hollow earth, I think I called it Into the Great Wide Inner, which was uh, 
my clever take on a, a Tom Petty song uh, title. Uh, he does cover the Green Man in that, so you can compare and contrast there if you want to give that a listen as well. Anyway, without further ado, I want to welcome in author, speaker, intellectual, researcher, all-around good guy, Mark Ollie. Thank you for coming into the garden again. Hi, it's an absolute pleasure to be back. You kind of lost me a bit on intellectual there. I don't think anyone's called me intellectual before, but I guess, I guess in some respects, uh, if the hat fits, I suppose. Well, you, you're, anyway, you're, yeah, a, you're a, a multi-book published author. Is that, that counts? Well, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah the author book's a bit of a monster. Um, yeah, where do I begin? Um, well, let's start with a bit of an advert. Let's get the adverts out of the way. Um, uh, my publisher, um, Philip Main, uh, is... Uh, Philip Mantle, sorry, my publisher, Philip Mantle, at um, Flying Disc Press is due to bring it out, hopefully, on Amazon. Um, we're hoping this side of Christmas, fingers crossed. Great. Um, and the book is called The Polychronicon of Merlin, Joseph and Arthur. So wow. no other Arthurian book has that word, polychronicon. Um, and it just basically means a chronological history. So it, it's written like a, a diary or a journal um, in uh, order, order of event and order of time. Oh, yeah. I, don't anybody, I don't think anybody's attempted that before. But that should be available, hopefully, certainly on pre-order, I would imagine, before Christmas. Um, but uh, by January, it'll definitely be out. Um, I've, I've got a print copy here now. So uh, in all respects, it exists. It only took 45 years to write. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll do an advert within an advert. Philip okay. Mantle himself has been a guest on this show, so check out the, the show with Philip, who is an author himself, but also is a publisher. And many of his authors have been on, on the show. So if you seek uh, to, to learn more about Philip and his books, there were there's a, sh a show on Roswell with his author, Tom Carey. There was a, sh a show on abduction with... Uh, was one of the Kinsellas. I can't remember which. I think it was Philip Kinsella, actually. Um, Kenneth, we never, we never got a, uh, straight. Um, Luigi from UFOs in Brazil. We had Ryan Musgrave Adams with uh, uh, cryptids and uh, lights in the sky. Uh, M.G. Stevens has been on twice. Uh, Dr. Elena Scott about Pascagoula. I'm sure I'm leaving people out. I'm going to stop right now because I, I know I'm going to forget <laughs> some there. Uh, but Philip Mantle's been a great friend to the show, and we're we're pleased that. Uh, and, and you know, I probably met you through through Philip. I don't even remember anymore because it's got to be. I, I would I guess that's where I come from. Yes, yeah. yeah big shout out to Philip because he's an excellent guy. It, it's probably getting close to what someone told me is Arthurian. I don't know if it's accurate or not, but there's the one, and then there's the twelve knights of the round table. I don't know if that's uh -huh. correct, like the zodiac, but maybe we'll find out today if there's support for that. But uh, uh, Philip Mantle has, has supplied. We're probably. Uh, Going to have to increase our roundtable pretty soon. It's probably more twelve, more than twelve at this point. <laughs> oh, well, at least you know a roundtable will fit inside a round flying saucer. So uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the idea there were twelve knights. There were actually twenty-four because there's two in each segment in the original story. So there are twelve segments containing twenty-four knights in all. So yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> oh, I wasn't right. Someone else wasn't that. That's good. So it's sort of like the the pantheons where if one god sort of got killed or was like voted off the island, they replaced it with another on the council. You know. It's, uh, yeah, actually, it's exactly like that because uh, I mean, if you look at the timeline, 
got the Greeks, which then influenced the Romans directly because they're there at the same time, then the Romans are there at the same time as the build-up to Arthur. So Arthur's background, if you like, is Grecio-Roman. That's what he is. So uh, the whole idea of you know dividing things up into a division of 12, that's a very Roman idea. It's a Roman concept. Um, uh, there's a building actually called the Pantheon in Rome, which has... 12 segments, and there are other buildings with 12 segments, um, and the Zodiac as well, which you very often find, you know, in, in the floor of uh, mosaics, you know, in Roman buildings and things like that, that's broken up into 12 as well. So it, it's kind of a universal Roman concept uh, that that's the way things are done. So, yeah. Very nice. But, the Romans were very in powerful. Arthur, in Arthur, he had to double it. You know, yeah. you have to make 24 nights. <laughs> right, and it sort of explains why they added two months. It wasn't just about to honor the particular emperors. They wanted to get to 12. Um, yeah, yeah. So, okay, yeah. very very cool. Very, I mean, it's 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 amazing just how powerful the Romans were and the things that they have influenced. Um, amazing. Anyway, uh, so you said the poly... Polychronicon. Polychronicon. So I know about the Necromonicon, and I know about the Cryptonomicon, which is a book, which is fabulous, and the Necronomicon, which is a book, which is a Chronicon, which is a book that is supposed to be, you know, not fabulous, probably in its own way, but scary. Um, Yeah, scary book. So this is great. I would love to hear a chronology of Arthur because it's sort of all over the place from a lot of different sources and and authors. I kind of, I kind of made it my my job, if you like, to try and make sense out of all of the nonsense. And the only way you could really do that was to string it out in order. Because uh, when you look at the three characters I picked, Merlin is is the end, if you like, of a line of druids. Well, druidry already at that point had two and a half, three thousand years of history. So to understand Merlin, you've got to understand where he's coming from. So I started with Merlin because he's coming out at the end of the Bronze Age into the Iron Age, and then you know that's that's his background. He's got this enormous long religion behind him, um, and then tacked on the end of that, of course, Christianity then starts to subvert other religions and, and absorb other religions, and the same thing happens here with druidry. So by the time Arthur's time is here, then the Druids are Christianized in effect. So the next in line then becomes Joseph, because he comes over here as kind of a religious dissident fleeing, you know, the the, uh, ever-reaching talons of Rome, you know, having just crucified Christ. So he comes over here. Okay, which which Joseph, and I'm assuming, I mean, people can tell by your accent, but I think when you say Ah. here, you mean Britain. Britain, yes, I do mean Britain. It's Joseph of Arimathea. Okay. So he, he heads this way and brings a load of followers with him, which I'm sure some of the other authors will uh, introduce as well in other interviews. But he brings with him most of the relics then that you find Arthur looking for, most famously the Holy Grail. So, uh, you know, Parsifal, the story, has Parsifal searching Wales. You know, he's Percival of Wales, uh, which kind of gets you started then on the geography. And then, of course, following that, following... Joseph, because Joseph's kind of early Roman, um, you've got very late Romans, so sort of 350, 400 years later, you've then got Arthur. So if you do it in chronological order, you start to see where things are coming from, how they then get added into the story, and by the time you then arrive at the story, you've already got the background to understand what you're looking at. Um, It also has the effect of getting rid of the rubbish. 
So the idea that people are running around, you know, dressed in shiny suits of armour that weren't even invented till the 1400s, that goes out of the window. All the nonsense that's talked about the Holy Grail goes out of the window, because by the time you arrive at any of that, you already have an understanding of what's going on. But it's a Roman understanding. You know, you're starting to look at Arthur as Arthur really was. He's in context, you know, he's a warlord of the 5th and 6th century. So that's where you need to put your head before you really get into that material. And that's what the book does. That, that's the beauty of it being in chronological order. Well, sounds great to me. And folks, so we are not going to George Lucas produce this Star Wars thing in a in hodgepodge order. We're, we're going, we're starting with the origins yeah. and we're coming forward. So I well, like they've it. Already, they've already done the hodgepodge version, if you like, because that's what we're stuck with. You know, we're stuck with libraries full of the, this stuff that comes from all different time periods with different ideas and different backgrounds and all that sort of stuff. So my job as an archaeologist is like to, you know, pull out the three and a quarter inch trowel and get down in the hole and dig through the layers to get to, you know, the origins and where things sit and to get things dated. So I've approached it with very much that in mind, but it's just taken an enormous amount of time to do it. That's, that's the, the kicker, really. I didn't realise it was going to take quite so long, but... Yeah, uh, it has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it has, but the, the Garden of Doom will reap the benefits of your four and a half decades of efforts, and then and we're, we're going to get it in in, you know, I don't know, 90 minutes or whatever. So uh, so at, le at least enough to make it uh, understandable, but also not enough because so that people want more and they buy the book. So I guess you're going to take us to around 2000 or 2500 BC or around Stonehenge's time and and uh, and then bring us bring us up to date and I'm just using Stonehenge randomly I know Stonehenge well, has been associated with Merlin and you know well it's it's interesting because the crossover in subjects actually really happens right at the outset because when you start to look into what the druids believed in the BC period so you are going back 2000 maybe 3,000 years, you know, to the to the end of the Bronze Age, to the origins of Druidism in Europe. That is the same origin for the Green Man. But the Green Man is actually even older. He goes all the way back to Babylon, so he's 7,500 BC, uh, which we can come to later. But the two have got the same common origins, which presumably, when you get into the medieval Arthurian period, so now you've fast-forwarded like you know, 4,000 years, when you get into the medieval period, somebody knew that when they did Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, they must have cottoned on to the fact that the Green Knight is actually basically just a green man. That's what he is. He behaves like a green man. He acts like a green man. All, all the snippets of the green man legends are sucked into that Arthurian tale. So you've got this thing where burbling away in the background is the Merlin bit of the book, if you like, that, that bit of the book, it forms the spine, it forms, you know, the, uh, the the thing on which everything else is hung. But as a part of that, you've also got the green man. So if you dash out and buy the book, let's get the adverts in, dash out and buy the book revealing the green man, which is out and it is on Amazon and it's been very popular, it very often makes it into the bestsellers. Um, if you put that alongside the Arthur book, 
then you've got extra background to Merlin. It'll give you a lot of that extra background. Um, I think Arthur does make at least a token appearance um, in uh, the Green, uh, revealing the Green Man, uh, because that covers Gwen the Green Knight in more detail. Uh, but there is detail then again in the Polychronicon as well, because obviously it's it's part of the tales, you know. Um, so there's a massive crossover. You wouldn't looking at the surface, you wouldn't think there was, but there's like four thousand years of crossover. You know, um, it's background. It's all background. It all feeds into it. No, this is great. This is this is uh, terrific. So I guess we should start with the druids and what they believed, and uh, and uh, you'll probably get to it anyway. But people, you know, there's some people say that Merlin is the same person who was sort of you know magically immortal. I say it was sort of a title for you know sort of like Pope. It's like Merlin was sort of like the head magician or the head druid. Uh, or or all druids were called Merlins. It was just another word for it. So I, I'm not yeah, sure what it is. You you've sort of nailed it because um, there are in in Wales in particular, whoever is the chief bard or the chief druid seems to have Merlin as a prefix. So you get Merlin Taliesin, you get Merlin Ambrosius, you get Merlin Lalogan, you get Merlin Willet, you get Merlin Tertugan, and so on and so on. Um, I've got I think I've got seven between sort of the 400s and the 600s AD period. And it only seems to run for about 200, 250 years. So you could probably say there's probably three of them, say, in each 100-year period. Hmm. And they do, you know, one passes on to another, on to another, on to another. Um, so the two that were of interest in Arthur's time, Merlin Logan, which means Merlin dear friend, he is the traditional old, you know, long beard, uh, crotchety old guy who's like, you know, he's out to try and save Druidism. He wants to see, you know, the Romans back in Britain. He wants to see everything re-established. But he gets to the point where at the Battle of Baden, of course, Arthur wins. So he's like, yeah, that's it. We're sorted. You know, we're, we're back again. This is how it's going to be. At that point, he's probably over 100 and he dies. So halfway through Arthur's life, we lose Merlin 1. Merlin 2 is then Merlin Willett, which is Merlin the Mad or Merlin the Wild, and he's much younger, much younger, and he seems to hang out in North Wales, then eventually move up to Cumbria, which is a different area of the UK, Um, and he actually then sees Arthur go the opposite way. He sees the whole thing fall apart, and ultimately Arthur die at the hand of the Saxons, and then he lives past that to the point where the Welsh are actually having civil wars with themselves, so he slowly goes mad and he finishes up in the forests up near Scotland, um, so there are two of them just just in Arthur's lifetime, you know, uh, very much a title. And what I've done is I tried to cover all of them briefly uh, in the in the run up, you know, to the section on Merlin. Um, Merlin's background really is a druid. Merlin's background is Greek. Um, the the few references we've got to them uh, to druids, um, I've got them all in the book as many as I could find. Uh, one of the references refers to them being Pythagorean. They followed Pythagoras. Well, Pythagoras died in, I think it was 535 BC, something like that. So his beliefs and his philosophers, philosophies carry on. But when you consider the Greeks got into France through Marseille, um, if you look at France, Marseille's like down at the bottom of the mm-hmm. Mediterranean end. It wouldn't take long for Greek culture, um, you know, the Hellenizing of France, it wouldn't take long for that to go up through the centre of France and eventually start to affect the Druids in France, and then ultimately the Druids in the UK. Well, you can actually see how it spreads. You can see it happening. 
which of course is hundreds of years before Arthur's time. By the time you get to Arthur, it's all you know, it's ancient history, literally. Um, you know, but it, bizarrely, the whole thing begins with the Greeks. You know, um, well, let's which, let's start with the Druids, basically what they believed, and then what the Greeks believed, and 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 what you got when they sort of cross pollinated. Well, the, 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 the two are essentially the same. Um, you've got uh, Pythagoras's very famous book is the Golden Verses. Now, the right. Golden Verses were actually translated uh, into a form that Merlin could have read by a guy called uh, Herodotus in about, um, no, not Herodotus, Heracles. Let's get me Greek names right. A guy called Heracles in the 400s. But not that Heracles. Yeah, translated it into not, um, Celtic. Not, not Hercules, uh, uh, just, not Hercules, just a namesake. And yeah, that, uh, good, good it's not Herodotus, because he's the, the father of history, <laughs> but also the father of lies, right? Yeah, he's, he's miles back. Yeah, Heracles. Anyway, he translates it, and it's available then to people during uh, during Merlin's lifetime, Merlin One's lifetime. Uh, the Golden Verses then really go on to influence loads and loads of people, and you can probably find them online, uh, but they're in the book as well. I've, I've quoted them in full uh, in the book. But a lot of that Pythagorean doctrine, that idea of um, continuity of souls, that we we come here from somewhere else, um, the idea of, um, how can I put it, logic, uh, solidity, mathematics, structure, you know, everything that we associate with ancient monuments and what have you, all that is uh, embodied, if you like, in Druidism. Uh, the Romans actually said if you wanted to train as a Druid, the place to come was the UK, was actually Britain. The best Druids that, that were around in, in the barbarian world came from the UK. The centre of that Druid would be somewhere in the northwest, somewhere up sort of Manchester, Liverpool way, that way. Um, and in France, the centre of that is at the source of the River Seine. Um, so we've got the River Mersey, which was dedicated to the same goddess, Sakana. So I'm going to take a really big stab and say that's probably where the Druids met, okay. the source of the River Mersey, the same as they met for the uh, uh, the River Seine in France. So you get all these crossovers. I mean, I put them in the book. I'm trying to get geography as well. I'm trying to nail yeah. some of the geography down in the book. No, geography um, helps. It helps people understand. You can yeah. put you can put points in. I mean, you can you can picture it in your head, and you can sort of put the points in with the chronology. You know, chronology. And well, there's, there's, loads, there's loads of photographs in there. I put plenty of photos and illustrations and things in, so people can can see, um, you know, what there is and where it is and things like that. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot to it. Um, Druids then, of course, became Christianized. So um, I know people are going to go berserk at me, but you know the idea of Odin hanging on a tree, you know, to receive wisdom and that that's actually after Christianity had already affected the pagan world. You know, Christianity's back in the first century. The Vikings are, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred years later. So this this idea of um, Isis, Jesus. Uh, there was actually a, an Isu that was being waited for by the Druids. They expected this prophet to turn up called Isu or Isus, um, and eventually, of course, he did. He turned up. So the, the crossover, you'll find the crossover between um, Druidry and Christianity, especially in this country, it gave birth to the Celtic Church. Um, and the Celtic Church was founded officially 
uh, around 5254 AD by Joseph of Arimathea. So if you like, I always say this, if you go and knock on the Pope's door, you know, and he answers and you say, hey, you know, who, what's the oldest church in, in the world? The Pope will have to admit that it's the Celtic Church in Britain, because officially it is. Because the Catholic Church, you're talking, you know, Saints Peter and Paul, it's after 60 AD. So it's later. It's actually later than us. Um, I know it was only about 10 years difference, but, but we still get in there first. Um, and I've got to say this as well, because it's a great exclusive in the book. If you read the research, you look at the research properly that's in there, the second proper official pope, because of course the first one's Peter, the second one uh, is a guy called Linus or Linus. Um, his wife is British. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now for our bonus round. It's the most stressful season of all. Name it, Dave, for 300 points. Uh, what is winter? Oh, come on. Correct answer. What is tax season? Sorry, Dave. Whoa, who are you? I'm April from Tax Act, where we help you file for less and get more. More for less? Yep, so you can turn tax season into maximum refund season. Well, there it is, folks. Tax season's a winner after all. Switch to Tax Act today and start for free. See taxact.com for details. Ooh, okay. So it's like, wow, do you know what I mean? In fact, I'm pretty sure his mum, I think I think Linus Linus's mum, is also British. So there's a huge kind of influence going in right at the very beginning. Well, Massive great we, of influence. Time for a Jeff Bad joke. We know he didn't marry her for her cooking. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and Pope, it, it's, it's Frederick now. No, no, it's Pope Francis, right? He's the Pope now? Francis? I'm not sure. It's, uh, there was two of them going at once at one point, but yeah. I yeah, think I, think, I think it's Francis yeah. from Argentina, right? So yeah. I, I'm pretty sure he listens. So Pope Francis, <laughs> if you're listening, feel free to send me a message on Twitter at IcarusFellMD, or uh, you can go to the Garden of Doom Facebook page and, and post there and acknowledge Joseph of Ar- the Arimathaic uh, Celtic Church as being the first. Thank you. I wish he would. Yeah. <laughs> as long as he dashes out and buys the book, because, you know, he needs to look at the research. I, I, I hope he's really listening. <laughs> I hope he is, yeah. A lot of the Joseph of Arimathea stuff, to be honest with you, that comes from extra canonical stuff. It comes from, you know, bits that have been researched, mostly in the 300s, the 400s, the 500s. Obviously, Jesus and the characters were all alive back in the 100s, so you're talking quite a few centuries later. Yeah, but a I, lot of that information comes from Catholic sources as well. I know that um, now, but I, listen, yeah. this, is, this is how dopey and how late to the game I am. I mean, for years, I didn't know the difference between Joseph of Arimathea and Joseph, Jesus's, let's just say, stepfather. I, I thought I thought they were the same person just because uh, I mean it, t- it took forever for me to real you know and then Joseph from the the Technicolor dream code was like you know three uh, the, like three thousand years time. earlier and and Joseph Flavius is a different person and you know just because of the name Joseph like you know so well listen if the Jews get hold of the name they're happy with they'll stick to it you don't want to know how many Marys there are I mean on, on the boat that came over to Britain with with uh, Joseph of Arimathea there's at least two or three of them if not four of them 
um, you know, there's like the Ethiopian handmaid Mary, there's Ma- Mary the Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, for goodness sake. Anyway, at the end of the day, by well, the time you get well, to southern France. Which is support for it not being fiction, right? Because no fictional yeah, exactly. writer would give everyone the same name. Just would do that. <laughs> and and I, I think the Black Madonnas are actually the handmaiden. I think she got off in southern France and went off somewhere, and they all assumed that she was as miraculous as the other occupants of the boat, you know. Uh, which would explain why you've got all the black Madonnas everywhere. But who's the black Madonna? Uh, in southern France, they have pictures of Mary and uh, carvings and statues of Mary. Oh, is that Mary where, Magdalene? Is she referred to as the Mary black Madonna? Magdalene, yeah. Where for some reason they've depicted her looking either extremely dark skinned or actually black. They're known as the black Madonnas. Oh. It's a whole mystery thing. You'll have to. Uh, go and have a look, you know, go and Google it and see what you think. I mean, it's not um, that big a mystery if you think about that it's, uh, we're talking about uh, Canaan to Northern Africa. I mean. Yeah, it's, yeah, you'd expect it. You know, you'd expect uh, guys and girls to be of different, you know, shades, as it were. So, yes, it's perfectly acceptable. But the, the argument, the, the bit where people are bound to take odds with me, are uh, it's going to revolve around Mary Magdalene because the question there is, did she get off? in southern France, did she get off the boat and go and do something in southern France, was it the Magdalene, or did she stay on the boat and make it all the way to Britain? Now, the, obviously, the British legends make claim to her being here. Uh, there's a possibility she's buried in the first church below Joseph. So you've got kind of Joseph on top and Mary underneath, because she died first, obviously. Uh, she was the oldest. Uh, or there's the possibility that they've got her skull in a church in southern France. Mm. <coughs> um, you know, uh, it depends what you believe. Right. It depends which way you go. Uh, my book just focuses, obviously, on the, the British material. Right. If you want the French version, read the Da Vinci Code, and you'll get an entertaining version otherwise. I was going to say, yeah, read the Da Vinci Code, and who knows whether it's true or not. <laughs> right. uh, you know what I mean? It remember that the Da Vinci Code is a work of fiction. Yes, You it must is. remember that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mine isn't. By the way, I just must point that out. I've tried as much as I possibly can to get rid of the nonsense. Um, and the characters are, well, Arthur, for example, he ends up being actually quite brutal. Uh, you know, he's a, a typical uh, Romano-British uh, war leader. You know, he's the Duke of Battles. He doesn't attain to, to be a king at any point. You know, there were kings, but it wasn't him. Uh, you know, uh, Merlin ends up, like I say, being this, you know, uh, sort of religious... Uh, survivor of an old order, an ancient order, you know, and he's trying to, uh, the, the personalities start to come out and you see him trying to save the world that he can see disappearing. And poor old Joseph, basically, he's like the, you know, a refugee. He turns up on a boat. You know, we have this big thing in Britain at the moment where we're getting refugees coming across the channel, you know, from, from France. It's not new. You know, it's nothing new. Joseph did that. You know, he came here 2,000 years ago as a refugee. That's how he got here. And when you start to contextualise these characters, honestly, the, the, the book is quite gritty and it's quite real. Uh, you know, you've not got uh, shining knights in shining armour going off to some mythical land fighting dragons, you know. Right, no uh, yes, now. they are cuffy, but, you know, it, it, not in that way. It's not like the Martin Borman Excalibur movie, you know, it's, uh, it's a bit grittier than that. <laughs> I, I, I've noticed one thing. If, if something is historical, it's called migrations. If it's current, it's either called, um, you know, refugees or an invasion or immigration but, but or, or colonization, uh, you know, yeah. but, but migration seems to be, you know, 
we look at the That's past. That's the and we, uh, archaeological label for it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. It was. It's, it's much more placid than 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 yeah. I guess the others. Uh, I guess uh, there's there's been a colonizer and a refugee in how they arrive or why they arrive, but the end result, you know, is often the same. I suppose. Anyway, that doesn't matter. I'm, I'm probably wrong. Well, the, the, the thirteen people in Joseph's boat is definitely not an invasion. Yeah. But once they get here, the Romans are like, oh. Hey, we can we can do this, you know. So you get Claudius then. Claudius started in the four forties. I think it was about around about forty two, forty three. So he's begun the invasion on the south coast. Joseph basically lands up in the north in the fifties. But by the time you get into the sixties, into sixty AD and after that, the Romans are up north as well and they're giving the Druids and the Christians a damn good bashing, uh, because they are invading. So that is part of it, you know, that's implicit with the formula, if you like, that creates the whole land, the whole territory, the whole geography that Arthur was familiar with, you know. Uh, so, but, yeah, but, it goes from being a, a refugees and, and, you know, a migration on a tiny little scale. So it let, does eventually. Let me get the timeline. So Joseph and Arimathea left, went there in the, you know, uh, we're talking now, we're talking now common era AD. So we're talking about in the yep. 30s. Um, you know. uh, well, no, Jesus dies 36 AD, common okay. era, um, or thereabouts. Joseph I thought it was 33. Then, you thought it was about 33? I thought it was 33. Okay. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I'll tell you what the problem is. It's worth mentioning this because it's in the book again. Uh, somebody made a real pig's ear of recalculating the calendar um, in the in around about the 530s, about 534 AD. They recalculated it, and seven years went missing ah. so if the calendar we're quoting for example is out of the bible then it can be anywhere between about 33 36 somewhere in that ballpark we'll call it the fourth decade of the first century AD. Yeah, by the time you get to king arthur you're like 10 years out you know what i mean so it can move Think, things move whole decades and then which makes it difficult to get the chronology and then the romans if i'm correct caesar went into Britain. That's BC. Right. And then yeah. they left and then came back 10 years later, but they left again. They were having problems. Uh, no, I, well, I, I can correct you here because he, he came in 55 BC. Okay. And he came, he saw, he went home again because it went badly. He came again in 54. He managed to actually land this time, but he got absolutely battered by the Celts. He only made it about 70 miles inland, signed a treaty, and then cleared off. Right. Then it's almost 100 years before the Romans dare to come back, which tells you a bit more about what the Druids were like and what the Celts were like, you know, this was got this, this land, Britain was an Island, you know, sort of beyond the pale. We, we, we lived in another world. It was, you know, off the edge of the, the world, as far as the Romans were concerned. Uh, and they only came back with Claudius. They came back under Claudia, Claudius in about 43, 44 AD. So you, you've now in the AD period. So, so then you got Joseph in 52 to 54 AD. And then you've got Julius, not Julius, what's his name? I was going out of my head. Can't remember the emperor anyway, but they all, they come back over here again, the Romans, in about 60 AD. They march up north. Well, Hadrian, right? Gonna... He built the wall, right? Uh, hey, no, Hadrian's miles after that. Hadrian's oh, okay. about 120, something like that. Right. Yeah, don't get into Roman emperors because we're going to struggle here. We're yeah, so you're, you're, see, you're right. Yeah. So, yeah, let, <laughs> so we'll stick to Joseph, to Merlin, to Arthur, but I do yeah. have one question. The whole sword in the stone thing, 
I mean, yeah. it seems like a pretty obvious metaphor that someone but it was, you know, an upside down sword in a stone looks like a cross stuck. So it's yeah. you're lifting Christianity. It seems like the but but is that what the sword of the stone is, or is there anything to a sword actually in the stone? Yeah, I've got a brilliant answer for that one. No, that is definitely not what the sword of the stone is. No, what they used to do um, when chieftains became rulers of their territory in this country they would present them with a traditional bronze sword. Now, these bronze swords, which are ceremonial at this point, you know, they're swords of office, were cast, the liquid bronze was cast, in a stone mould. So it wasn't probably Arthur that did it, it was more likely Merlin. He would have cast Arthur's sword and then lifted the solidified bronze sword out of the stone mould thus pulling the sword from the stone. Now, at that point, it would have been shiny, and that's where it gets its name, Caliburn, Caliburnus or Calderbold, which means shining one, it means flashing one, and that's the sword that Arthur starts with, but he only ever uses it for ceremonial purposes, because obviously, if, you, if you're up against iron swords, which the Romans had, you wouldn't stand a chance. Right. So I've, I've got him having, he probably had about five or six different swords in his lifetime. Uh, the iron one, I think the iron sword of Arthur finished up in the Crusades, being sent into Jerusalem by Richard the Lionheart. He presented it to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as a gift. Um, it's recorded in one of the journals from the Crusading period. That's where it ended up. So clearly Arthur had more than one sword uh, to fight with. Uh, but that's the sword, the sword from the stone. It's it's you know it's pulling it out of the mould. That, that's where it comes from. Ah. It's funny because you know we we get these medieval stories coming with all these bright ideas, and we kind of look at them then and we we almost modernise them because medieval is you know our time. You know it starts our thousand years if you like. But as soon as you start to look then at where the the origin of the story really comes from, it actually still fits reality. You know they were still throwing swords into lakes right. in medieval times. You know, they, they were disposing of weapons that way for a thousand years or more, maybe two thousand years even, right back into the late Bronze Age. And they had a different understanding because they were building on a different set of building blocks. So that's the sword out of the stone. That is that is a perfect example of that. Well, now you have to tell um, us about the lady in the lake because you just saw they throw swords into lakes and now one comes out from, yeah. with a lady. What what What's up with that? Ah, well, they had this idea. Uh, I think the Lady of the Lake is the goddess. She's Mother Earth. And that goes way back into prehistory. Okay. There's no doubt about that at all. Uh, and the idea was that if you deposited something into water, it was going from this world into the reflected world. So it was going into the next world. It went below the waters. And you were sending it on its way, if you like, to back to Mother Earth and back through dimensions into another world. And that's pretty much what happens after Arthur dies. Cal Calderbol, Cal Cal Caliburn, his shining, flashing bronze sword, nobody else can have that. It can't be wielded by anyone else. When he dies, all his relatives are dead. He had seven sons, and they all get killed off during his lifetime. So there's nobody else to pass the sword on to. So I, I personally think he went all the way back to where he was trained, because uh, they go past... Uh, the villa of Sir Hector, which is at the bottom end of Bala Lake in Wales. It's an archaeological site. It actually exists. That's where he was trained in swordsmanship. Well, you pass that. You pass that on the way back from Camlan, the final battle site. And it's opposite, directly opposite, Bala Lake. 
And Bala Lake is, is so deep. You know, people used to think it was bottomless. So if the sword's gone into Bala Lake, we'll never get it back. But that's where I think it is. I think it was thrown back into the bottom end of Bala Lake so nobody else could wield it, nobody else could use it. Um, there you go. So that's how it ends up. It does end up in about, I think it's about 5... 536 AD, I think it gets thrown into Bala Lake. Okay. Um, all right. So it's sort of sword, baptized sword, sort of, but before baptism. Um, all right. So I think I've sort of taken us out of our chronological order, which is defeating the purpose. So I, I guess, know. so uh, how does Mer, how does the, the first Merlin, the good Merlin, how does he decide who Arthur is or come upon or meet Arthur? And, and who's Arthur? Okay, uh, there is already a line, if you like, of uh, British commanders, um, the most noticeable of which is Ambrosius, Ambrosius Aurelinus. He's, he's a really strong Roman leader um, in Wales. I mean, that's it. We're, we're into Welsh legend here. Uh, they think he's possibly descended from a guy called Maxon or Maxentius, who was a Roman commander. He's, he's generations down from him. He also has a brother who is Uther. Now, Uther becomes Uther Pendragon because Uther is of the same generation, similar generation to Merlin. Merlin actually saw Halley's Comet. Now, Halley's Comet has a little extra bit on the tail. Sure. And he talks to Uther about this and Uther talks to Merlin about it and he says, you're the big dragon, Uther. You are the Pendragon, the foremost dragon. You are the big comet, but you're going to produce a lesser comet, a, a minor dragon, if you like, um, and his name will be Arthur and he will be your son. And, you know, so as Uther gets older, it's already known that his son will be this character called Arthur. Now, it's interesting because uh, Uther actually, once he gets going, once he's settled down with Aegea, who is um, French, basically. She's a French maid. Now, I won't go into that. We'll be here all night. Uh, it's in the book, by the book. Right. Um, he produces probably about five or six sons and a collection of daughters. And I think I'm right in saying Arthur is either the second or the third of the sons that he produces. But Arthur ends up becoming the most prominent warrior. You know, so Uther's got relatives and Arthur's got relatives, you know. Um, but Arthur himself is the one that is prominent. He is this prominent uh, dragon character, if you like. Um, so Arthur, basically, he gets uh, sort of farmed out, if you like, as, as a youngster to Hector, who is, um, is Welsh named something like Cynic Farfog or something, but I'm not going to go in Welsh. We know him as Hector. Um, he actually trains Arthur then to become a warrior. Uh, that's really where Arthur starts. And Arthur's there with Hector when Arthur's age 14, when Uther is poisoned by the Saxons. So you can almost imagine him there, you know, being trained on the banks of Bala Lake in this villa. You know, he's been trained in swordsmanship. It's, he's been with Hector a long time, uh, probably all his life. Didn't really know very much about Uther, but I bet you he was upset when he found out the Saxons killed his dad. So you're starting to see the people. You're beginning to get into the personalities again and, and, and see why Arthur had such a pathological hatred of the Saxons. Um, he's crowned at 15 in Chester. There are four other nobles carrying swords that are with him at his 
coronation, if you like, they all represent the different military zones around Chester. Um, and as soon as he's crowned, he then starts to build his war band, which I'm going to take a stab and say he's probably completed that process by the time he's 18. You know, he's, he'll have a capital, he'll have fortifications, he'll have soldiers, and he'll know where he stands. Uh, so really, he really starts to take on the Saxons around about his 18th year, uh, under different, you know, with different commanders and what have you. Uh, no doubt he will have had battles between then, between the age of 15 and 18. But as, as the chosen leader, he probably would have been too valuable um, to risk losing him uh, to the Saxons until he got to the age where he could run his own campaigns effectively. Did he um, have a sister, Morgana Le Fay, who was a witch of sorts? He had several sisters, uh, Morgana or Morgoose, as she's sometimes known. Um, she's given as one of his sisters, but I'm not sure if in medieval times they didn't take an earlier character, an earlier goddess, and sort of attribute that to his sister, if you like. Uh, but there's also, I mean, the same thing applies to, you know, you can have 500 Marys, well, you might be able to have 500... Morganas as well. It was probably an extremely popular name, you know, uh, to name somebody after a goddess. So I'm not ruling out the possibility that one of his sisters wasn't called that. It's just the oldest records I could find for that were principally medieval. Um, they, uh, that name doesn't travel back, if you like, into surviving early sources. Uh, it's not part of the early uh, earlier stories. So historically, the, the, the Morgana Le Fay has is more probably more likely. A fictional larger than life character than if she did live than what she was and so there's no son yeah. modred who was the uh, uh oh there is oh there yeah, is the, the usurper oh yes do you want me to tell you the story uh, <laughs> you, you, know you, you get to it in the in the right chronology i don't want to i don't want to rush things well no i can give you the chronology because when he's when he's at hector's when he's at hector's place and he's learning to fight with the sword mm -hmm. he falls in love with a local maiden uh, from his own tribe, if you like, from his own area, and her name's Guire. Now, Guire effectively becomes his first wife because she produces Mordred. Okay, so Arthur's son by Guire is Mordred. You've just got to know who's married to who. His second wife, wife in inverted commas, um, is a mistress of a character called Whale. Now, Whale lives in Ruthin, in North Wales, and he basically fights him, and there's a whole story surrounding that, and he ends up with a second wife, this mistress. His third wife is Guinevere. So, you know, many years later, he has this arranged marriage with a Pictish queen, who is, who is Guinevere, because the Picts are all over the place. Picts are all over North Wales, they're all over the Mersey Valley, they're all over uh, this area, uh, Derbyshire and Cumberland and all this sort of thing. Uh, so he needs to get their support. So then he has a political marriage, if you like. But if you can imagine this battle leader, you know, his attitude is, well, you know what, I'll do whatever I want to do. You can imagine him being like that. Sure. He just he just pushes Guire away. Guire just disappears. Um, so you end up with the jilted uh, wife and you end up with the jilted son. And the biggest irony is that the jilted son marries a daughter of Whale, who ah. gets beheaded by Arthur. So again, you've now got you've got a jilted daughter now. So you've got three people there in one family that all end up absolutely hating Arthur. So Mordred is a very, very real character and he does he does 
you know, have this fight at, at Gamlan, which is half on Gamlan in, in sort of going down into mid Wales. Um, and basically, they do fight. Arthur does kill Mordred, but Mordred is fighting Saxon style. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Breathe in and out. Let relaxation fill your mind. Even if you're super stressed and behind on your taxes like me. Ah, sorry to interrupt. Who are you? I'm April from Tax Act. You can let go of tax season stress and elevate to a heightened state of serenity with our free expert help and a maximum refund. Free help? Ah, waves of calm are washing over me. Good, because here comes a storm of cash. Tax Act, the help you need for free. See taxact.com for details. Now the Saxons poisoned the weapons. So Arthur takes, you know, a slice or a stab or whatever from Mordred. Three days later, he's dying of blood poisoning because, you know, he thought he survived. Everybody thought he survived. But no, he's extremely ill because of the poison weapons that the Saxons were using. So once you know all this, once you start putting the history back in, the actual story, the real story is, is far more entertaining, far more fascinating, much darker than anything that you start getting later on you know when you start putting gods and goddesses in and it goes all mystical and shiny and fluffy and you know it, it just you know Lancelot doesn't even appear in the early stories you know he's a side character he's, he's got a really complex Welsh name and he just appears in the warband he only got magnified got amplified you know like seven eight hundred years after the stories were, were concluded so that the original stories are much darker much much darker <laughs> I can see from your face, which of course the audience can't, but I can see from your face that there's an element of amazement and bewilderment creeping in. There is, it's, yeah. but it's not so much amazement yeah. and bewilderment. Is that yeah. like I, I don't really know what question to ask to you know to to move us. So I, I guess the, <laughs> the, the best question is because of time, I want to devote time to yeah. the Green Man. Also, yeah. is you know what you know? I guess we would talk about. The Holy Grail. What, what is or isn't right about the Holy Grail with the Arthur ah. story? How did he? You know, it sounds like we're getting to how he died. Did he go to Avalon, and what is that all about? And then from there, I, I guess then we can pivot to the story of Gawain and the Green Man, and then and, and from the Green Man. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Well, there's, there's two really good questions there. One, one's the Grail, and one's Arthur's death. Uh, answer is yes, Arthur died or was assumed to have died and he was put on a boat and he did sail out of the de-estuary or whatever, but he came back to land at a place which is recorded in Doomsday, believe it or not, as in Avalok, Avalon, Avalon, you know, it's Isle of Apples, it's there, you know, it exists. Um, and it's basically a couple of hills in, in Cheshire, you can find the range, it's there. And that's where he was taken. Druids came, collected him, and nobody knows where he was buried. Uh, he's gone. He's vanished. So there was this. There were two stories. Some people thought he was dead. Some people thought he was going to come back, and he wasn't dead. So both of those stories, I, I don't 
come down on either of them. I record them both as, as they are. He's, he's uh, not a Jesus both. figure, in other words. It's not, he was uh, three days then resurrected. No, none of that. No, as far as everyone's concerned, he's still dead. Okay. But, but he might not be that way forever. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, the uh, once and future king. Yeah, once and future king. Uh, it leads us nicely into the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is an interesting one. Um, people have looked at the medieval legends and they've all gone, oh, there was never a grail before 1200. Well, yes, there was. It wasn't called the Holy Grail. It was actually called a Graal. Now, the Graal comes from the Viking word, the same root word for gruel. And what a Graal is, is a bowl that was used on a Viking ship for passing life-sustaining porridge round to the members of the crew. So they could all eat, and they all let out basically the same big stone bowl. And it was a, it was a mixture, if you like, of something resembling porridge mm. flavoured with wine. Go back another jump, go jump back again, the grail, the cup of the Last Supper, uh, you know, it's Passover, and what are they doing? They're eating bread and wine. So basically, that answers the question of what the grail is. It is the cup of the Last Supper, but it's the cup of communion. It's the cup of fellowship. So actually, there can be numerous grails. Now, the Sangral, Sang is, is a Viking word meaning the, the in capital letters, the grail, is the one that Jesus is using. So you end up with the, the stone cups. There's two of them. Um, it's amazing because fairly recently they found the Islamic shipping receipts over in the Middle East for these being shipped across to Europe. So they exist. There are two of these stone cups. Well, it was, it was this, buy one, get one free at that uh, Pier well, 1. So, well, yeah. there were two of them in the Holy Land. They didn't know which one was which, so they basically shipped them both. The story's more complicated than that, but it's in the book. Um, so they exist, and they are the Sangral. They are the, the Holy Grail, which presumably is what everybody was after. But a grail, a grail is any bowl that serves a company of people and gives them life. So basically the bread and the wine, in, you know, gives people life. You've got to remember that the Bible wasn't available to the general public till the medieval times. So when it became available in medieval times, that's when the stories of this, this amazing grail start coming out. And that's what it is. It's basically, it's a type, if you like. It's an allegory. It's a, a form of the grail. Now, people are going to start wailing and gnashing their teeth when I say this, but in Percival, Parsifal, he's supposed to ask a question and he never asks it. It's, who does the grail serve? Hmm. And when the grail procession goes past, you've got this amazing question, who does the grail serve? And he never asks the question. But the answer is, the grail serves those who are faithful to God. That's what the answer is. It's just communion. That's all it is. I remember God that from Excalibur. The, the, the yeah, well, there you go. There's a thousand years of mystery just going, you know. <laughs> now, the grail is. if there was a quest for the, well, first of all, was there a quest for the Holy yeah. Grail? And if there is, how, how can you distinguish one porridge bowl from another? Was it marked in certain ways? Did it, did it say, you know, did he write in, in Sharpie Jesus so nobody stole it out of the work refrigerator? I mean, yeah, how, how would they know which, which, which is the, the holy grail? The, 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 either one of the twins, either one of the pairing of the bowls, yeah. whichever bowl it was. Well, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here a little bit because the ones that have the best claim are those two stone bowls. And I know that at least one of them ended up in Spain. So they never made it to this country. 
So you've then got to say, okay, there's Arthur. He's you know going all over Britain. What was he looking for? It wasn't there. Well, the clue is the clue is in the Joseph legend because Joseph apparently collected the sweat of Jesus and the blood of Jesus in two containers. Now that definition of a grail can be stretched to any relic that's associated with either the Last Supper or the crucifixion. So the Joseph of Arimathea grail are these two containers, two glass cruets, one with the blood of Christ, one with the sweat of Christ. They're said to have been buried with Joseph. So, yes, there's a whole dinner service of other things, you know what I mean? There's platters and bowls, and they're made of clay and glass and wood and goodness so forth. Yeah, there's loads of other stuff that's associated with the Last Supper and associated with the crucifixion. But the one that's really, really pertinent to Arthur are these two glass cruets. Um, and as far as I can tell, they never found them. They, okay. they never got them. So they if, never actually located them. So if there actually was a quest, it was unrealized. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think, I think in his later life, Arthur, you know, I mean, when you've run out of people to kill and kingdoms to conquer, and you can't drive the Saxons any further away than you've already done, but you're still sat there in a position of power, you have to sort of justify that. You've got to say, you know, why am I here? Why am I sitting here? So I think he's the first of a new generation of of medieval people, because he's early medieval, really, post-Roman, early medieval. I think he's the first of a generation of people that use the hunting of relics as um, adding to their power, as additional, you know, the idea of divine rule, divine power, you know. Holy war. Um, and I think that's, that's what he was doing in later life. He was off searching for, he wasn't just searching for the grail, he was searching for all kinds of things. Relics. Uh, yeah. One of the true cross, nails of the crucifixion, you know, anything that was going, uh, he was collecting. And that carried on, you know, it just, it just carried on. I am sorry, you know what, what time period, what years are we looking at right now? For that collecting period, yeah, for the the life of our the you know from the time Arthur became king to the to the end of his rule, um, he's I think he's born. Let me get this right. I think he's born in the four eighties. I think he's born in four eight three, okay. and he dies in five three nine. Okay, so fifth and sixth century. Yeah, either side of five hundred is is what you're looking at there, uh, and I'm quoting the Welsh dates here, um, and they have been corrected to that seven or ten year discrepancy. So those are the dates in our time. Well, that's where it would be. We'll use a ten year margin of error just just, just because yeah. of a, I don't know if this is the Gregorian Julianic thing or what, but uh, we, we understand uh, you that the could use the error if you want. It actually makes things more interesting if, if you put the error back in. Uh, but I've tended in the book I've tended to try and nail a date. You know, if I can get a year then I'll go with it. I'll I'll nail that year if I can, you know. Uh, but that's just that's just me. That's just the way I did it. Who was Arthur's successor? Um, a, 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 it was a young lad called Custenin or Constantine ah. of Kernwy. Now Kernwy is the Klein Peninsula. If you look at Wales on a map of Britain, the Wales looks a bit like a pig's face, and at the top it's got the ear sticking out. So that sticking out bit, that's the Klein Peninsula. Uh, Kernwy later got mistranslated into Cornwall. It's not Cornwall. Nothing to do with that. Yeah, that's south, possibly, right? That's that's like the, miles down. Yeah. yeah, that's like the foot at the bottom. You know, it's mm. it's right down the bottom. Like the duckbill. You know, yeah, this bit that's sticking out is Kernwy, um, and that's possibly where Arthur's family came from, and where his family were at the time of his death. So it would make sense. 
Now, the, the worst part is Constantine, you know, he gets, Custenin, he gets um, appointed as Arthur's successor and then never gets a chance to rule. He just he disappears, vanishes after the stories. Um, so you can only assume that the Saxons kind of went, hey, you're our man, you're next, you know, bang, yeah. he's gone. Well, we know uh, that the think- Saxons uh, took control and then they ultimately lost to the Normans, though, in between that... Uh, the, the yeah, British like to forget that <laughs> you're sort of forgetting <laughs> the Vikings and the Danes and all that. But it's it's worth mentioning actually in the chronology of the book that I don't stop. Um, I, you know, I, I kind of I, I do the ancient bit with Merlin, and then I do like the you know the slightly more recent bit with Joseph, and then I do the Dark Ages bit, which is Arthur. But I don't stop. I carry on. I keep going. So I look at the Saxons. I look at the Danes. I look at the Vikings because once you've done that. You then arrive at the medieval stuff. You're there with the Normans. You know, you're into the the really big, big stuff that they start to do. But once you go through the gap, through the you know the the, the Saxons, the, the Danes, the Vikings, it makes more sense. So the book actually carries on through that time period, and I don't think anybody has ever done that. I don't think anybody's actually asked the question: What did the Vikings think of King Arthur? You know, when they arrived in Wales, what did they make of it? I'm not aware of that. We know what the Saxons thought of him. They absolutely hated the sight of him, so they just ignored him. They tried to write him out of history. The Danes kind of thought he was all right, thought he was a bit of a hero, you know. Uh, But the Vikings loved him to bits, absolutely loved him to bits, because the Vikings, at the end of the day, are the same as the Normans. You know, they, they are the same. The Normans are the Vikings of northern France. Absolutely loved him to Right, uh, Rollo uh, was the founder yeah. of the Normans, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the Northern French stuff, you know, because uh, you've got loads of Arthur stuff in Northern France. You've got it with the Bretons and all that. Mm. Once you know that Uther Pendragon's wife came from there, then it suddenly it starts to make sense. The Bretons actually accepted Arthur as kind of one of their own because Uther, his father, had married in. Um, right. Honestly, there's Well, Norman some... means Northman, literally. Yes, and now, yeah, Bretons... Yeah. Bretons there in France, are they in Brittany? Yes. Okay, so yes, the Bretons are. Yeah. are in Brittany, which is in France. Yes. <laughs> they're, yes. So, so they're different than the Bretons who are in Britain. <laughs> yeah, well, if you imagine Northern France has been a game of two halves, you've yeah. got on one side, you've got the Normans, on the other half, you've got ancient Britons that came into Britain. Yes. We, and the two kind of sit side by side. We harbor no illusions on this show of any sort of genetic purity. <laughs> that, like, I, oh, I, think that, I think there may be like five people out there who are, you know, in, in, out of eight billion, we just crossed eight billion, that, that you know, that they've only got one ethnicity in them their whole life. The rest of us, yeah. well, I don't care who you are, where you're from, the rest of us, we're all mutts. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Know, take well, t- take that, it or leave. I'll make that point in the book actually, because there's a there's a there's an internet group that are trying to identify Arthur's DNA, and they've decided it's something like I don't know what it is R one A B thirty three or some nonsense. I, I can't Turkic, ironic, a little bit of this, a little bit but, of that. Yeah, by the time you read the book, you start to think, well, I got a minute. You know, five generations ago, he had a Spaniard in his line. Then he had, you know, some guy from Wales was in his line. Then his mum turns out to be Northern French. You know, by the time you finish, he's a Roman. You know, he's, he's a Heinz 57. Right. right. Yeah, that's great. A Heinz 57, Ancestry to me, or D23 to me. Uh, yeah, I, I, one of my uh, guests, uh, Darius Kamali, I hope he's listening. Shout out to Darius. He, his show is the Persian version. You know, he, he'll tell you that the Arthurian legend has a lot of Iranic roots and the Sarmatian Knights was sort of the inspiration for at least what we, yeah. you know, the, the Knights of the Round Table or how we picture the Knights anyway. Well, 
Well, yet, yet again, it's covered in the book because we have Sarmatian Knights in Chester. Chester is Camelot. Nice. It's that simple. You just go north into the northern military zone, north of Chester. You've got Ribchester. That's where the Romans stationed all the Sarmatian cavalrymen. I, I so, love it when my guests agree with each other and, yeah, uh, and they're both smart. Yeah. I'm sorry I called you an intellectual <laughs> earlier, but I, I, I stand by it. Okay, so... <laughs> Let, let's then let's then pivot to our Green Knight and then into the Green yeah. Man, because I know that's a pretty big topic in, in and of itself. As you said, it goes back to 7,500 years, which probably means it's older than that. It's just that's the first depictions we have. Yeah. Um, yeah, going into the Green Knight. The Green Knight's an interesting one. Uh, it does appear, like I say, in the book revealing the Green Man, uh, because that is a later medieval uh, rendering, if you like, of what we now come to know as the Wheel of the Year, because Gawain has to uh, complete his task and face this Green Knight over a year. So you're going from what was uh, old New Year, old Celtic New Year in Britain was actually January. I think it was the 16th of January. So you're going from mid-January to mid-January from one year to another. Um, and January over here, you guys would hate it. It's freezing cold. You know, we, we kind of, you know, we go from Barbados to, you know, northern Canada in, in the space of a couple of months. You know, it's crazy <laughs> over here uh, what the weather does. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, he, he has to face this green night. He has to go and face it. It's a challenge. The knight rides in on, on, you know, old New Year's Day and basically says, you know, I challenge your most worthy knight, Arthur, to a fight. And nobody moves because everyone's looking at this guy thinking, hang on a minute, he's got a green face, a green horse. He's wearing green. He's wielding a socking great big axe. You know, I don't really want to get involved in this. So good old Gwaine. Was he a giant? Was he very uh, large? He's a big bloke. Yeah, the Green Knight is a subversalak, it turns out, is his real name. And he, he's, he's a hell of a big fella. But, you know, the only one to pick up the challenge is Gwaine. And basically what he's doing is he's also um, defending Guinevere's honour because right. this is a slight against the court, you know, this Green Knight. So he chops the Green Knight's head off there and then. And the Green Knight, of course, <laughs> chuckles, picks his own head up, sticks it on his shoulders and goes, hey, I'll see you in a year and a day. And then <laughs> it's my turn. And that's basically how it plays out. You know, um, he gets tempted uh, during his test, uh, Sir Gawain. You know, Burslak's wife tries to seduce him three times. And Gawain manages to resist, all except for, you know, a kiss on the cheek. And she gives him a green sash for protection. So when he actually gets to face the green knight, there's three blows of the axe. The third blow actually hits Gawain and draws blood. So Gawain then jumps up and goes, hey, you've had your three goes now. Uh, and at that point, the green man then turns into Bursalak and goes, you know, you'd have passed this challenge without even getting a scratch. If you'd have told me that, you know, you got a kiss off my wife because you, you stole that kiss. So you're still the most virtuous knight because you didn't do what I thought you were going to do. But you still failed because you weren't honest and you didn't, you know, mention the kiss. Oh, and by the way, you didn't mention the sash either, but we'll let that one go. So when he gets back to Arthur's court, they're all like, yeah, we'll all wear green sashes. Let's all put them on. and We'll wear them for protection because it's a symbol of the power of Mother Earth, you know, or Father Earth, depending on how you look at it, because the green man is just that. It's always a man. The green man is always male. And it's it's this potent energy, this this fire of life that regenerates the planet. You know, it's the energy that keeps everything going. That's ultimately what it represents. Uh, and the, the monk in Cheshire who wrote the legend down in the 1300s must have been keenly aware that that is God's creative power. You know, it's whatever it was that was put into the planet that makes everything tick. 
So that was that was what he was aiming for with the story. He was trying to communicate that as uh, as, as as something within that story. So well, like the, I say, go back go so, back to seven and a half thousand BC, and well, that's, that's when you come face to face with the Green Man for the first time. Well, let me interject just quickly for an observation. So that was sort of was that blending that Arthur absorbed the best of all worlds, so the earth, the power of the land within the king, as well as uh, adopting Christianity. It's a... Well, Arthur only kind of appears briefly uh, in Sequoia the Green Knight. He's, he's, as a lot of the medieval legends, bizarrely, Arthur's like a sideline. You know what I mean? He, he kind of starts the legend, and then somebody else goes off and oh, does yeah. it. But, but they're ancient. They're agents of a disclosed principle. I mean, in my, in my, re, in my real life, I'm a lawyer, so they're his agents. They're, you know, so whatever they do that's good, you know, vests upon him. Yeah, so Arthur's court and Arthur frames the story. Yeah. Uh, and people would have been familiar with that. You know, um, I mean, the monks used to love stories in medieval times. There's many a tale of them, you know, being more interested in what the latest Arthurian tale was rather than reading the Bible. You know, uh, they were really interested in, in that sort of thing. So that would have been a, a bestseller, you know, going to the Green Knight, because it's framed with Arthur either end. Right. It's got all the essential characters in it. And then it focuses right down on Gwen. Gwen is a really strong Christian character in medieval times. He's got this five-pointed star on his shield that represents the five wounds of Christ, and he's supposed to be the most virtuous knight ever, you know, ever to live. Like I say, forget Lancelot, he he's, doesn't even exist at this point. Um, you know, so they're focusing in on Gwen and this idea of chastity, you know, goodness, faithfulness, you know, obedience to God. It's, it's everything the monks were all about. But at the end of the day, it was, it was an excuse for a good tale, you know. Um, and it's that Celtic Christianity thing as well that I mentioned at the beginning. It's the idea that, you know, uh, something like Christianity can sponge up everything that's gone before and then out comes something that's different or new or reinvented, but in actual fact has ancient origins. Um, that's absolutely exemplified by Gwen the Green Knight. That's what Excellent. it is. Um all right. Oh, yeah. So, uh, sorry to uh, uh, sidetrack That's a little right. bit, but let, let's go back then to uh, to 7500, so about 5500 BCE. I assume we're going to go to Sumeria? Uh, you're heading for Babylon, okay. and you're in 7500 BC. So that's actually 9,500 years ago, okay. which is still some going, uh, you know. Uh, what you do is you go to the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, the Epic of Gilgamesh, translated from cuneiform, uh, only translated relatively recently, historically speaking, uh, only since Victorian times uh, have we been able to read it. Uh, and in there, there are a couple of tiny sections that most people just go whizzing past. Um, there's a section where they're about to destroy a forest. And you've got to realise this is set at a time when farming, is being invented. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Breathe in and out. Let relaxation fill your mind. Even if you're super stressed and behind on your taxes like me. Ah, sorry to interrupt. Who are you? I'm April from Tax Act. 
You can let go of tax season stress and elevate to a heightened state of serenity with our free expert help and a maximum refund. Free help? Ah, <sighs> waves of calm are washing over me. Good, because here comes a storm of cash. Tax Act, the help you need for free. See taxact.com for details. So up to this point, you've had hunter-gatherers, okay? So you're really coming out of prehistory, coming out of the prehistoric period. And what these guys are actually going to do is they're not going to hunter-gather anymore. They're going to walk into this woods and hack it to bits. They're going to clear all the timber, all the wood out of the way. And what they do is they come face-to-face with the spirit of the woods, which they call Humbaba. Now, if you, if you see Humbaba mentioned, Humbaba is, in fact, the green man. And they go into the woods and they're terrified. They take their axes into this dark, forbidding woodland. I mean, you've still got that in America. You've got woodland where, you know, the hand of man has never set foot. You've got areas where, you know, you can be completely, completely in the natural environment. But we used to have that here. We used to have oak forests here and obviously in other parts of the world. So here we are, 9,500 years ago. We're in Babylon. They're going to cut this woods down. And they do. They go in there and they cut it down. But they are terrified of this green power, this green, you know, uh, force of nature. They're scared to death of it and they don't really know how to handle it. So that's where we start. We actually start with that as being the first reference to this power. Humbaba is also often referenced as a giant. And I asked the same question about the green man. So is Humbaba like a giant, like 30 feet tall, or is it just like a big bloke as you put like Bursalak, like a, you know, let's just say seven, (laughs) like a Shaquille O'Neal seven foot two guy, you know? Uh, Do you know, at the end of the day, I've seen both. I've seen different versions of it. In medieval times, the medieval illustrations, the green knight is the same size as everybody else. Uh, But fairly recently, right up to, you know, like ten, the last 10 years or so, I've seen more and more illustrations where the green man's got bigger. And I, I think it's that understanding of the crossover with the giants of old. You know, yeah. it's that idea of the crossover with how it began. So I'm not, I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to notice that, you know, he gets mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh. My understanding is that the giants of old is, to take it literal, I know a lot of people believe that it's literal, that there were giants of old. But I, yeah. I, my understanding of giants of old is more like, is like a giant, like a great man, some someone of renown. So yes. like you might call, like, you might call Franklin yeah. Delano Roosevelt a giant of old, even though he was not a giant by any means, that it was more yeah. like, a, so, uh, and some of them may in fact have been big, largely because, yeah. you know, if power was wielded by the sword, then, if, you know, it stands to reason that somebody... Yeah bigger and stronger probably got there. That's that's my personal take on it. I know well, other people well, differ. The, the majority of ancient definitions that just referred to as men of valor, great mm-hmm. men of valor. So majority of ancient references refer to these characters as being essentially big personalities, big people, right. mighty people. But I've got to qualify it by saying there are some references that definitely point to the being large human beings, i.e. proper, you know, 30-odd-plus-foot-tall yeah. giant humans, which I think when we did Crystal Schools of Human Heads, I mentioned that is what you would expect to find in a complete form of nature because you get miniatures of things, you get normal-sized things, you get big versions of things. So human beings are no different. I think in the past that's what we had. So I'm, I'm for both. I actually go along with both. But I think in the case of the Green Man, and especially the Green Knight, I think we are really focusing on a man of valour. You know, he is a powerful, noble knight. 
who, who is green, essentially, playing a character. Um, I don't think in any at any point... I mean, Humbaba, it's interesting, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it's very hard to put a physical form to Humbaba. I, I think we might have engineered that back, because when you look at the original cuneiform and the translation from it, uh, yes, he's a mighty man, but a mighty man of valour, but it doesn't say, it doesn't specifically say yeah. a giant... You know, it, was uh, a very, it was a very Spielbergian villain in that, yeah. in that you really didn't see him until the end. And by the end, then, then they had yeah. their battle and that was it. Yeah. Well, yeah, by the end, you know, they've chopped his forest down and here comes this force that's really brassed off with the fact that you've just cut his forest down. Uh, and that, that fear, funnily enough, runs right the way through the whole of farming culture. You know, you find people right through prehistory making offerings, you know, praying to the gods, praying to God you know, trying to apologise, if you like, for doing the damage that they did in starting this craze for farming. And we're still in the same position now. You know, it's, it's basically, it's green, isn't it? That's what it is, it's green. People are trying to be green. You know, we're trying to save the planet. We're trying to reverse the damage we've done. And it's been the same for 10,000 years, you know. Um, we still keep doing the damage and we still keep apologising for it, you know. Uh, by whatever means we can, uh, you know, it's it's the same. It's it's just a repeating thing. Well, in ten years, no one in Manhattan will be able to listen to the show because there won't be Manhattan. So anyway, so <laughs> so that'll teach them anyway. <laughs> as, as long as we can all swim, we'll be all right. Yeah. Well, good. this is Garden of Doom. I mean, you know, this, yeah, this, we're not we're not we're not going for happy endings here. All right, so <laughs> Humbaba was the, the green man. Possibly a giant, possibly not. Yeah, but yeah. the but the first representation. Now the Epic of Gilgamesh was written, we believe, six thousand years ago. But you're saying the story is much older. Perf- I, I think I, the oldest I, surviving record is about seven and a half thousand BC. That, oh, that's that's the clay tablets. Oh, okay. Didn't yeah. know that. Okay. Wonderful. All right. Cool. Can uh, please continue on. Okay. Well, uh, that is the end of prehistory, and it's farming, and farming, if you like, then flows almost seamlessly into metallurgy and the discovery of metals. So, uh, you know, 7,500, 6,500, 5,500, by the time you get to 4,500, you're starting to slip very slowly into the Copper Age. Uh, somewhere around about that time, somebody noticed that copper, when you dig it out of the ground, is essentially green. So what you're doing is you're smashing up the earth to pull out green stuff so they somehow made this connection and then lo and behold when you actually melt it it goes gold and when you look at copper that's melted in a crucible you lift the lid off it looks like the sun it's gold and it burns like the sun so taking all the visible references the visual references they had they strung them all together to create this idea that somehow you were removing something green from the earth that then had something to do with the sunlight that shone on the earth that was the sun that was gold that was like the green stuff when you melted it. And then they connected that then to the fact they were mining it out of nature, possibly mining it out of the forest. Um, And it became then effectively the solar copper cult, the idea that the sun is shining, producing all this greenery, and out of the greenery they can pull this green rock that then produces something which actually contributes to life and death. 
Because when you get these copper tools, you get these copper pieces of equipment, you can use them for farming, but you can also use them for war. So you're back into now the swords, the axes, and the other things that they produce. Um, and to some extent, gold got sucked into that as well. Gold became a metal of the sun because it behaves in the same way. When you put all this together, you're into the Bronze Age. You're into the sacrificial systems that they had. You're into the idea that you had to make sacrifices to appease this this green god, this Humbaba or whatever. Um, and one of those sacrifices we have over here is a bog body called Lindo Man, or sometimes he's referred to as Lindo Pete. Now, he makes it into the book because when he was deposited, when he was... Um, sacrificed when he was killed and he was deposited into this bog as an offering it was discovered by the british museum he was painted from head to foot in green copper paint from the local bronze age copper mine so all of a sudden when i found this out in the 1990s when this report came out i thought hang on a minute that makes him literally the first green man <laughs> so they were literally painting people green and sacrificing them at this point, you 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 sort of you covered, I don't know, about maybe five or six thousand years there. You're coming up to the start of the Roman era, you know. You, you're coming out of that huge amount of Druidic culture. Iron Age had happened as well, but for some reason, iron just didn't have the same attraction. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was horrible, dirty brown, you know, and yeah, well, better to work with. Iron oxidizes to reddish. You know, rust yeah, color. It was, it but, was just used for menial but, purposes. But copper you know? oxidizes um, to green. Yes, it does. It does. Um, and then it has other qualities as well, like the Celts were renowned for painting themselves this blue-green color that Julius Caesar mentions. Uh, well, that blue-green is copper. It's copper powder. That's what they're painting themselves oh, with. Oh. So they start off gold because they painted themselves. It oxidizes. It turns green. And it dyes their skin green which means they can go into battle, they can fight naked and scare the Romans witless, but then if they happen to get injured, they won't get blood poisoning because the copper goes into the injuries, because they're fighting naked anyway, so there's no, there's nothing to go into the wound. It goes into the injuries and kills the bacteria. So they're living longer. So all of a sudden, you know, it's another dimension. It's added yet another dimension to this copper cult, solar copper cult. Um, and that runs right the way through the book. You, you can see this solar copper cult going all the way through. Um, somebody pointed it out while I was writing the book. It got really scary, so I added it into the book um, that we were still still using copper in a sort of a life and death situation because until fairly recently, that's what bullets are made of. You know, the cartridges have got this gold colour in them. They've got that type of metal being used in them. So, you know, for goodness knows how long, maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand years, we've been using metals to kill each other. You know, admittedly, the, the top end of the bullet ended up being lead because we've discovered that lead's deadly. Um, you know, but it's it, it just it goes on and on and on. So it runs all the way through. So right from Humbaba, you go through the Copper Age, you go into the Green Man. The Green Man, the epitome of that, I think, would be Lindo Man, the sacrifice. Uh, I mean, I'll look at more examples in the book, you know, till you get to that. And then from him being then, if you like, absorbed into Celtic Christianity, that's where you get these faces popping up all over the place. Because you get things like the Green Christ, you know, surrounded by leaves and all this. Uh, it's that life-giving force. 
the other reason as well is uh, foresters. If you look at foresters, uh, at the end of the Celtic period, the Anglo-Saxons started this verderers or verdigers, which are literally in French, that means green men, which are the guys looking after the forests. Guess what colour they wear? Green. They wear green. Right. Guess what they dye the clothing with? Leftovers. Or... The DMV. Number 97. Or... House cleaning. Or... Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Copper. There you go. So they are literally green men. They are wearing a skin of copper. And it just carries on. Well, they've got the right to put their guild symbol in any of their religious establishments. So that's why you get green men in churches, medieval churches, that are associated with areas where there's forests. Okay, the so foresters are putting the guild symbol in. So the it's not goblins, it's not reptilians, it's not it's not demons no, from underground. It's, it's a medieval guild symbol for the foresters. And the Saxons had them, the Normans had them, they were there in medieval times. Robin Hood was one of them. You know, uh, and it just it carries on, it flows, it, it finds its way through the Green Knight into Arthurian legend, you know, um, and they knew what these symbols represented. It's only fairly recently we've lost the full meaning of what these symbols represent. Um, you know, yes, it's a symbol of life. But you're not working on a book for Robin Hood over 45 years also, because I don't know if I can wait 45 years for another book in, for the Robin Hood story. Well, go and have a look on Amazon. For the life and times of the real Robin Hood, it's spelled R O B Y N H O O D E, and that's one of mine. So you can go oh, we know the author. The yeah, well, you <laughs> know what I'm gonna. You know I'm gonna. The next show I'm heading you up for, and <laughs> in about six months <laughs> or so, will be Robin Hood. Yeah, so. yeah, we'll do it. Absolutely, absolutely. But try and get the book in the meantime. If anybody else wants to get it, by the way, just make sure you spell Robin Hood right with the Y for the book. R O B Y N. H O D E, and you'll you'll find it, or just type my name. Yeah, you're gonna use Mark Ali, M A R K O L L Y. That's it. It'll come up under my name. So yeah, that's basically that's that's you know when you when you stick it on the fence, you know, as a green fertility symbol, and you want your garden to grow and all that side of it. That's one aspect of the green. Uh, I, I want to get you and Andrew Goff into a room to do a debate because he he's uh, oh. he he takes some of yours, but he's got some other takes on it as well. That that would be fun. And and he's. Well, He's a very, he's very polite. It won't it won't be one of those Twitter fights. I was just going to say, don't forget when you stick that little green face on your wall, you're also sticking up a human sacrifice because that's what it is. It's a Celtic severed head. So you know it's you know, life and death. Because I know yeah. you like you know to end on a dark note. Yeah, of so. course. Yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, just bring that little element of doom in there for you. Yeah, no, no, a little, a little doom never hurt anyone. It's it's everything in moderation. That that's yeah, that's that, that's the lesson. All right, I can't thank you enough. This was this was great. I was worried that I wasn't going to give you enough time on the Green Man, or we would have a very long show. But as it turns out, the the, the Green Man was not nearly as nefarious as I had uh, thought, which is probably good for the rest of the world. But very interesting. Yeah. I had no idea it was like a, a guild of well arborists, or foresters, rangers, whatever. Foresters, yeah, murderers, murderers. Yeah. Vertigo's yeah. excellent. All right, so, all right. Spell the the book Polychronicon. Right. Okay. 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 Let's 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 get the adverbs out of the way. Poly P O L Y Chronic C H R O N I C. 
O-N. O-N. Polychronicon. Okay. Because that, that, that's good. C-O-N. Yeah. I think this. I think the name of the show is going to be Polychronicon of King Arthur and the Green Man. So, yeah. Uh, so I think that's going to that, that'll probably be the title of the show. But Polychronicon is definitely going to be in there. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Mark's been on the show before, but Mark is an author. He's. Are you? A, you're an archaeologist too, right? I am actually professionally an archaeologist. I'll tell you what, just, just to bracket it both ends, I'll accept intellectual. Go on. I'll okay. accept it. Yeah, I'll yeah. wear that hat. But a professional archaeologist. Now, and I think that's important because a lot of people who come on shows like mine are amateur archaeologists. And I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't dismiss them. I don't, I don't poo-poo them or anything like that. that. That's great. There's lots of people doing terrific research out there. But I think it, it does add a level of, you know, accepted establishment bona fides yeah, when yeah. when yeah. you have someone who's a professional archaeologist. All right. Mark Ollie, thank you very much. Everyone go to Amazon, buy his books. As you heard, there's one on Robin Hood, there's one on the Green Man, there's there's yeah. one on Arthur. I mean what 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 more does a a, a Britophile want, a Celtophile want? What, <laughs> what what more could you have in life than that? And it, t- it takes you through the Holy Land and through the Joseph yeah. of Arimathea. I mean, come on, what 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 what's missing? Nothing, just Darth Vader. Um, <laughs> don't don't get me started on that because you know George Lucas based a lot of what he did with Star Wars on Arthur and the Legends of Arthur. So. Hey, you know, let's look, look at you booking yourself for more shows. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mark, I can't thank you enough again, folks. Uh, make sure to check out his stuff, buy his books, make excellent Christmas gifts or whatever holidays you celebrate in this time. And even if you don't celebrate the holiday, give yourself a gift or give someone else a gift. It's nice. Times are hard. People are unhappy. Give, give gifts. Give the, give, give the book of reading, knowledge, intelligence, exercise our brains. Um, as I do a podcast to avoid actually exercising my brain. So, uh, yeah, hypocrisy, IMD. Anyway, thank you for tuning in. Everyone, you're going to hear from us again next week in the Garden of Doom. Dawning wet on Britain's shore King's Hall roused by a pounding on the door A giant Dressed in green, never seen before Hefts an axe and holds it high And lets a challenge roar You crave and men may fear dishonor But you fear my vengeance more That's fear that chills you like a wraith And it's don't you Like
Leftovers or the DMV or house cleaning or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We were prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
As a local community bank, we understand the needs of small businesses like schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations. That's why so many of them choose Arundel Federal as their Maryland bank of choice. A local bank with roots in the neighborhood that doesn't require appointments to be seen. Doing good for the businesses and people in our communities is how we've been doing business since 1906. Visit us at ArundelFederal.com. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.